0: It was always pretty clear what the two dominant subjects of this year's Munich Security Conference were going to be. The consequences of a possible restoration of Donald Trump in the United States. The reality of living alongside a recalcitrant Russia. Days before the conference opened, minds were focused further by Trump's bizarre outburst in which he said he would wave Russia into the territory of any NATO ally which had displeased him. Hours after the conference began, a similarly jarring impact was made by news of the death of Russian opposition figurehead Alexei Navalny. His wife, Yulia Navalny, was attending the conference and spoke the same day. This special extended episode of the Foreign Desk recorded at the Munich Security Conference meets a few of the European Prime Ministers who are having to grapple with Europe's external threats as well as its internal dilemmas. We'll also hear from a former director of the CIA and an ambassador undertaking one of the more currently difficult roles in diplomacy. Does enough of Europe fully appreciate the gravity of this moment? is enough being done, as well as said. And how can Europe concentrate on its own crisis in a world full of other problems?
1: This is The Foreign Desk. As a country of 11 million inhabitants, I know that it's easy to bully a country of 11 million inhabitants. Bullying a block of 27, that's something else, and that's what makes us strong. But defence was that last kind of island of sovereignty that we still had then we now see the negative consequences of that because the budgets to provide military support to Ukraine, they're there. The bottleneck today is just production capacity but we need to go to that process to build our own industry that has capacity to scale up.
2: There should be an explicit commitment to the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank for that matter that life will be better for them once Israel is able to separate Hamas from them It's not only a verbal or rhetorical commitment. You have to show it. Israel really has a choice of survival
3: or its reputation. This is the dilemma. We are, in the sense, trying to survive in a neighborhood that doesn't include Liechtenstein or Luxembourg.
0: Welcome to the Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later in the show, we will hear from the prime ministers of Greece, Bulgaria and Kosovo, as well as the former director of the CIA, General David Petraeus. But our first guest is Alexander De Croo, the Prime Minister of Belgium, a position he has served since October 2020. I began by asking Prime Minister De Croo about his reaction to the death of Alexei Navalny.
1: Unfortunately not surprised. But it remains dramatic, of course. And we can only only be in full admiration for what Mr. Navalny did and what he stood for. I mean, this is a person who continued to fight for democracy, fight against corruption, fight against the tyranny of President Putin. And who could have said at some point, I become an exile and I stay here in Europe and I criticize it from a distance. He did not do that. He went back and continued to fight for what he, he stood for. So only admiration for him and and really support to his wives and and his relatives. It also shows who Russia is today. That is really ruthless and is not hesitating to use any atrocity against its own population, against, uh, against Ukraine. And that has been testing us Europeans over the past, at least 10 years ago. And over the last years, we've shown as as Europeans what our response is to that. And that's our unity. Now, Russia has tried so many times to dismantle that unity. And I think that is must be the main frustration for them is that they have not been able to break that unity. And they've tried so many occasions. But see what we have done. Would Vladimir Putin have expected that Finland and Sweden join NATO? I don't think he expected that. We have expected that we give a clear path to joining European Union for Ukraine. He did not expect that. And he did not expect that Europeans would come to an agreement on financing 50 billion for Ukraine in the next four years.
0: We have also heard at Munich from somebody else famously who could have run but chose not to, President Zelensky of Ukraine. And The key line from his speech was the don't ask Ukraine when the war will end, ask why Putin is still able to continue it. Now, I know Belgium has committed another 611 million euros in military aid to Ukraine, which is no small change. But as you will be aware, Belgium is still not on target to meet that 2% threshold for more than another decade. I think it's the second lowest percentage among NATO members. Why so sluggish on that front?
1: Let me be clear on that. The 2% is an agreement, and we need to respect agreements. And we don't need Mr. Trump to tell us that, but we need to do that. Now, I'm three months out of elections. So a government, three months before its ends, cannot take decisions on that. But I'm convinced that we need to drastically speed up that path to 2%. And the current path by 2035 is too far out. We need to speed it up drastically and I will go into the election with that as a plan. But everyone in Belgium should understand that that demands some choices. It's too easy to just say, oh, we're going to go to 2%. That means that certain things we will...
0: Everything's a trade-off.
1: Yeah, everything's a trade-off. And that is happening throughout Europe. And yes, we know that defending the peace that we've enjoyed for the last three generations... I want the fourth generation and the fifth and the sixth generation to have that peace as well. And that means that we will have to ramp up significantly our military spending. And that is protecting our outside borders, that is protecting our critical infrastructure, that is being much more active in cyberspace in defending what we stand for. It's a shift in priorities. The world has changed. Not changed in a way that we Europeans expected it to change. We can complain about the fact that the world has become a world of great powers who would use any tactics to destabilize the others. But that is what it is. And we uh, we see that the European Union just over the past years, has become way more geopolitical. And that's a good thing.
0: The world may, of course, change again in another way in November. And I know you invoked the spectre of a Trump restoration when you spoke to the EU Parliament in January. And you did say something to the effect of, "Do correct me if I'm wrong, that if Donald Trump wins again, then Europe is on its own. Do you feel that that's a live possibility that Europe may have to jettison that reliance that it's had since the end of World War II? on the idea that the United States is the guarantor of last resort?
1: Look, at heart, I'm a transatlanticist, and I believe that if the United States and Canada, together with Europe, is pulling in the same direction, no one can beat us. But I think that since the Trump administration, all Europeans know that situations like that might happen again. The recent declarations of Mr. Trump, we did not need that to know that we have to stand on our own legs. And... That has been happening over the past years. Over the past years, tremendous effort has been done to invest more in defense, to look at trade in a much more geopolitical way, to uh, diminish our dependencies on certain countries. Stand on our own legs, from my perspective, means that there might be moments where we're not fully aligned, and then we should be able to stand on our own legs. But I expect the majority of times that we are partners and that, of course, will make us even stronger. And, you know, NATO works well if both sides pull their weight. And frankly speaking, European countries over the past decades had become a bit complacent on that.
0: Do you think that has been internalised by European publics, though? Because it seems like a good time to ask you, running an election campaign as you are, and therefore you are up against what is actually concerning European voters. But do you think, for all the criticism there's been of Western European governments, that they've become complacent in the post-World War II period, do you think Western European publics have grown accustomed over those several generations of peace to thinking of war as something that will always happen somewhere else?
1: Well, we, since 2014, know that it can happen on our continent with the invasion of Crimea and then what happened in Ukraine. What I hear from a lot of the Belgians is that they are fully aware of the fact that if you want peace, you need to prepare for war. And that's not a new concept. If you want peace, that means peace within all NATO countries. And some of them are more vulnerable than others, but we're strong when we stand shoulder to shoulder. That means that everyone has to pull its weight. But that is not only about spending the 2%. The most urgent thing is our industrial base and our defense industrial base really needs to be built up. And there we come from a long way because historically in Europe, the defense industry was very national. Because all our defense, our armies would buy on a national level. And we are confronted with that today. Defense is like the last remaining element of sovereignty. I mean, we've given away so much of our sovereignty. And, you know, this is what Russia in the past always told us is, why are you handing over so much of your sovereignty to the European Union? And my answer was always, yeah, that's because as a country of 11 million inhabitants, I know that it's easy to bully a country of 11 million inhabitants. Bullying a block of 27, that's something else. And that's what makes us strong. But defense was that last kind of island of sovereignty that we still had. And we now see the negative consequences of that because the budgets to provide military support to Ukraine, they're there. The bottleneck today is just production capacity. And scaling that up really takes a lot of time. And so our military industry is merging and working together and all that. Often demands interventions from governments because all of those companies are often looking into the direction of governments. Do you agree that we join, I don't know, that a Belgian firm joins a Dutch firm or a French firm? There's often some hesitation in that, but we need to go to that process to build a real our own industry that has capacity to scale up.
0: But are you finding that case difficult to make in this election in particular? And this is an election in which, as I don't need to tell you, the polls are being topped by a party which thinks Belgium is too large and unwieldy and multinational and multicultural in operation and actually wants to split it into at least two other
1: countries. This is not global thinking. Not at all. But if you do a survey in Belgium, even in Flanders, and you ask people, do you want to split up the country? It's less than 15% that says yes. But there's frustrations. There's frustrations about migration. There's frustrations about the fact that European countries are not the center of the world anymore. We're not the gravity point of the world anymore. And about multiculturalism and how to live it. And all these topics are difficult topics. What I try to explain is, you know, we do not live in a Disney movie where at the end people say, hey, let's be happy. And then everyone is happy. I mean, a lot of things we're confronted with are complicated. Living in an environment with multiple cultures is not impossible, but it demands an effort. Being competitive in the world of today is not an easy one, but it's feasible. And if you look at the big challenges, the big endeavors that we have in front of us, fighting climate change, providing our security, managing uh, refugee flows and migration, I mean, all those topics you ask the public and they will say, yeah, we cannot solve it on our own. We have to do it together. So I'm a big believer in European cooperation. Now, does the European Union need to become better? Yes, definitely. Better, more efficient, faster, cheaper, and so on. But that's not a reason to just throw everything away.
0: I just want to ask finally about the other conflict, which I'm sure has been a major topic of conversation here, which is the one occurring in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. And I know that you and Pedro Sanchez, the Spanish prime minister, went together in November to see Benjamin Netanyahu and pitch de-escalation, I think, to an extent. Did you find him in any way receptive to that? Or is this the time that Israel just will not be restrained?
1: I did not find him at that point very open for that type of discussion, and that is now three months ago, and it has not improved since then. And our position is now that there needs to be an immediate ceasefire, not a de-escalation, an immediate ceasefire. And this is the only moment that you can give, only way you can give the necessary humanitarian support. This is the only way hostages will be liberated, and they need to be liberated unconditionally. And this is the only way that finally a two-state solution can be put together. And we know that you need a Palestinian authority who has a real authority to do that. And we know that the countries in the region will have to play a determining role in that. I mean, there's a lot of things which are necessary, but all of that is not going to happen, while at the same time, every day hundreds of people are being killed. This is inexplicable. And as Western liberal democracies... When we don't respect international humanitarian law, we lose a lot of the moral authority that we have, and that's an assignment to all of us.
0: That was the Prime Minister of Belgium, Alexander de Cruz, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. (laughs) This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our next guest is Kyriakos Mitsotakis, Prime Minister of Greece. Here is what he had to say about the death of Alexei Navalny.
4: Well, I think we're all um, shocked uh, and deeply, deeply distressed. Uh, and I think it's a very good indication of what uh, this regime is capable of doing and uh, a constant uh, reminder about uh, the need to continue to support Ukraine as uh, they are standing up for their own uh, freedom and independence.
0: That was the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. You can listen to our full conversation in edition 3270 of The Globalist. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Our next guest is General David Petraeus, a retired U.S. Army officer and former director of the Central Intelligence Agency. General Petraeus is also the co-author, alongside Andrew Roberts, of Conflict, the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. I began by asking General Petraeus about the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine and whether he's optimistic about
2: the ultimate outcome. Well, this is a pivotal moment. In fact, I just did a piece for foreignpolicy.com, the title of which is The Future of the War in Ukraine, colon, it depends. And it depends in particular at this moment on the approval of continued U.S. support, $60 billion in the bill approved by the Senate. The House has to now take that up. But it's a question as to whether it will get a vote, even though there is a substantial bipartisan majority in the House for continued support for Ukraine. And obviously, the White House is eagerly awaiting this particular bill to sign it into law. So that's a big, big issue. I think that's the single biggest issue here at Munich, surrounds the prospects of continued U.S. support. And then also, obviously, questions about that have been raised by former President Trump about continued U.S. commitment to NATO— but it's really about the U.S. support, noting that, of course, the irony here is that we're seeing Europe and European countries do what we've long been after them to do. And I should note that I, my first NATO assignment was when I was a second lieutenant in an airborne unit in Italy that was part of the NATO Allied Command mobile force. And then I had one, three, and four-star NATO positions as well, noting that in each case, I was dual-headed as an American officer, an American command. So I'm very strongly committed to NATO. But I also have been frustrated by the small number of countries that used to spend the 2% of GDP on defense. And here we now have the prospect, according to the Secretary General yesterday, of 18 of 31 nations hitting that particular important milestone. And the EU in aggregate just committed an additional 50 billion euros to support Ukraine, at a time when they had already provided two for every one dollar provided by the United States, when you look at not just security assistance, which they've also now given a bit more as well, but also the financial, economic, and humanitarian assistance. So at this moment, when we see the Europeans stepping up in that important way, and in many others as well, to support Ukraine against this brutal and unprovoked invasion, They realizing of course that if Putin succeeds in Ukraine, they'll be next. Moldova would be in the the crosshairs, Lithuania very likely given Putin's mention of that country over 40 times and that grievance filled revanchist and revisionist view of history that he provided a couple of years ago and provided his dubious intellectual foundation for the invasion of his neighbor, which the existence of which of course he denies any right.
0: On a related subject, you will, of course, have seen or, or read about the annual Estonian Intelligence Service report, which does say that it thinks
2: that an open conflict between Russia and NATO is likely. Do you share that belief? I don't know about likely. And in fact, no one can judge, you know, likelihood, but it's certainly possible. And that is enough in and of itself. Noting that, of course, Russia has taken catastrophic losses. One of the recent estimates reflects that Russia has lost more tanks now than it actually had operational at the beginning of the war, noting that, of course, they had many in mothballs, essentially, in storage that they can bring out. But those aren't the top of the line tanks. They've sustained enormous losses in this war. Their military is much weaker than it was before, even as Putin is able to replace the staggering losses that they have sustained on the battlefield. And as they're able, of course, to buy drones from Iran and howitzer ammunition from North Korea and so forth, and generally to replenish the missiles and the rockets that have been so problematic for Ukraine, despite a very impressive air and ballistic missile defense system.
0: There will obviously be a lot of conversation at Munich this week about the war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas. And I I did want to ask you, given your own experience waging counterinsurgency campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'm not really sure we can think of what the idea for doing in Gaza is a classic counterinsurgency. But do you believe that their stated aim is actually viable, that you can destroy a group like Hamas if you're not much bothered about what else you destroy in the process?
2: First of all, let me just say that I actually agree that Hamas does need to be destroyed. I see Hamas as the equivalent of the Islamic state, albeit very, very different Palestinian nationalism and all the rest of that very strong support in the population. They also have to dismantle the political wing. I agree with that. And of course, rescue their hostages and so forth. But that's not enough, actually. Keep in mind that military terminology for destruction means to render the enemy incapable of accomplishing his mission without reconstitution. Keep your eye on without reconstitution, because It's one thing to, again, render the enemy incapable of accomplishing this mission. It's another one to keep him from reconstituting. That's where the people really matter. Hearts and minds matter. It's interesting you mentioned the counterinsurgency campaign, because I see that that's what this should be more than it is. This is a bit more of a conventional military campaign right now, and you need to be much more concerned, I think, with hearts and minds, given that this is a war among the people, which is Irregular warfare is counterinsurgency. And as we learned over the years, and none of our situations were ever as remotely fiendishly difficult as is the context of Gaza. But again, clearing Ramadi, Fallujah, Bakuba, Mosul, these other major urban areas, you have to clear and hold an area within the greater city and then begin to rebuild immediately But that hold means that you are securing the people in areas and the enemy can't get at them. We went so far in Fallujah, for example. Yes, it's a city of only at that time maybe 300,000 or so. But we created about 12 neighborhoods that were essentially gated communities. And they were physically all barriered, protected, one way in and out. And the people had biometric ID cards that we issued once we were assured that they were not extremists or insurgents. And that way you separate the people from the extremists, and you make their life better right away. I'd like to see much more of that. In fact, in northern Gaza, where Israel has made the most progress against Hamas, it probably arguably has met the definition of destruction of Hamas in northern Gaza. But there's still remnants, of course, and there always will be. But they're trying to reconstitute there, in part because the hold phase of this operation needs to be given greater attention. And really, the campaign design should be, again, much more of a counterinsurgency approach than a conventional military approach. There should be an explicit commitment to the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank, for that matter, that life will be better for them once Israel is able to separate Hamas from them and to keep them secure from Hamas, and immediately begin to rebuild. I felt, for example, that al-Shifa Hospital shouldn't have been closed after it was cleared of the enemy. It should have been kept open and made to look what right looks like. We did this with Fallujah Hospital. The very first objective in the final battle of Fallujah, this is the third time, this is during the surge now, by now we knew how to do this. The first objective was Fallujah Hospital for several reasons. One, we wanted to keep it open, and so, that as there were the inevitable civilian casualties, we could have them treated in their own facility. Number two, we wanted to be ensured that the enemy could not use it. And number three, we wanted to make sure that the enemy could not say they're in control of the hospital and there was all these huge numbers of civilian casualties, as they often did. So, the key point in, I guess, your life will be better with us is you have to demonstrate well, that. Well, it's not only a verbal or rhetorical yeah. commitment, you have to show it. Keep in mind, this is Andrew Roberts, again, in our book, Conflict assess that this is the most fiendishly difficult context of any urban operation since 1945 That includes even Mariupol, Hue City, and Vietnam and some others. This is an enemy who doesn't wear a uniform uses civilians as human shields, holds over still well over a hundred hostages, has subterranean facilities and tunnels of more than 350 miles, knows the neighborhood intimately, has support tacitly or actively of the people and very very dense population and not just with one or two story homes or dwellings in many places but much taller than that so again the scenario and context could not be more challenging that said the principles are still the same you have to clear an area and hold it before you move on to the next one but you still have to leave a force there to ensure that the extremists cannot get back into the neighbourhood.
0: That was General David Petraeus, former director of the CIA. His book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine, is available now. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our next guest is Ron Prosser, Israel's ambassador to Germany, a position he has held since 2022. Ambassador Prosser formerly served as Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom and the United Nations. And from 2004 to 2007, he was director general of Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I began by asking how his job as ambassador had changed since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th.
3: Well, I think it's not just my job as ambassador, I think. Israel will never be the same as before the 7th of October. We established a nation-state of the Jewish people, so we will never, ever see what we saw on the 7th of October, where basically Jews were burned in their houses, babies' heads were chopped off, and in the sense... Everything has changed on the 7th of October. It's coming out to the public and basically uh, saying, look, this massacre took place. Those who did it did not differentiate between left-oriented Israelis, Mm -hmm. right-oriented, orthodox, secular, even not Muslims. They basically came with an ideology of... uh, radical people, Jewish people. I think it came a bit for a shock for me and I think many others to understand how deadly the ideology of Hamas and all the others in this region, which we Israelis, and I think especially you in Europe and the United States, have basically trivialized.
0: Four months on, do you still perceive that there is a difference between how Israel sees what has happened since October 7th, and how, well, pretty much everybody else, including a lot of Israel's traditionally most steadfast
3: allies, sees the event and its aftermath? I don't think there's really a different way to see it, because those are facts. What I see is that the world is going back to the same habits of basically trying to... uh, think there's a uh, different way out. And what do I mean by that? I think it's obvious, should be obvious to everyone, that uh, the Hamas terror infrastructure has to be demolished and also its leadership in order to build something new. You're talking to someone who headed Israel's foreign service. I was a permanent undersecretary when we completely went out of the Gaza Strip. We took out 22 settlements. We also took out four settlements in the West Bank to show that there's political horizon. And the idea was basically coming out of Gaza never to look back into Gaza. Just think logically, why? What interest do we have in Gaza? If it would be quiet in Israel, it's going to be quiet in Gaza. They took Gaza and turned it into a terror state. And we always explained on the issue of containment why yes they write that they want to eradicate us yes they write that they want to throw us into the sea but they're normal people they would have families they would mm. have children the answer to that is no 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 the ideology is deadly they are willing to basically sacrifice their own population and they're doing what they did is crossing the Rubicon. from my point of view as an Israeli, I think that should be the point of view of everyone in the world, you know.
0: Would this not have been an easier case to make if, after October 7th, Israel had perhaps reacted not so quickly and not so violently. There was a period there where Israel commanded the moral high ground, and and quite rightly so, and might not have made that case easier to make if the world was allowed to reflect a little longer on what had occurred on October 7th before the world's attention became consumed, quite understandably, by what was then occurring in Gaza. Because as you will know, that has been the focus of the coverage ever
3: since. Okay, so let's look at the facts. Okay, it took Israel two weeks to basically react and look at things and what we basically have to do. And let's talk about something you didn't ask me, and you know, the issue of the reaction. People ask me, you know, ambassadors, is this proportional. And I would answer to that: What is really proportional? Should Israel now go into Gaza? look for exactly 360 young women and men, burn them alive, shoot them in the head, and then go down and look for the exact amount of babies, not one more, not one less. I think you get what I'm saying. So Israel has to absolutely take Hamas completely, the infrastructure out. And in the sense, when you look at this, you ask, what isn't the world getting? I mean, what isn't the world getting I think in the, the
0: sense? B- one of the things the world isn't getting
3: is what is the plan beyond this. Okay, so let's talk about the plan beyond this. Mm-hmm. Let's take Germany. We're on German soil, right? Sure. So in 1945, after the Nazis were basically thrown out, the uh, Allied forces created a security umbrella over Germany. Through the Marshall Plan, you had basically an economic solution. And through the education system, the denazification process in Germany could take place, which takes years. But the most important thing is after the Nazis were out completely, you cannot build on Hamas, you know, it's beyond terrorists.
0: But I'm asking about the decisions Israel is making. And if you're making that analogy between what happened here in the 1940s, in which it was a war of near total destruction of many German cities, the country was bombed to rubble, and then the Western Allies rebuilt Germany kind of in their own image, is that what you're proposing in Gaza? And would the funding behind an equivalent to the Marshall Plan come from Israel, or would you expect this to be somebody else's responsibility?
3: So some of the things that people are talking about, which I think logical, is that first and foremost, we have to make sure that a future Palestinian state is going to have democratic structures, structures that...
0: So you're not writing off the idea of a Palestinian state, to be clear?
3: I am saying that what you hear, ideas which make sense, where the Arab world, and I would also think that there's a place for Europe here, I would even say, you know, ideas of an Arab quartet in the sense of giving a structure that will allow to build something new on the Palestinian side that is absolutely, we won't repeat the failures uh, being done in the past on allowing a terrorist state to be established. And when you look at Hamas in the south, what we are witnessing up in the north with Hezbollah Is the same ideology here. And I need to say something about this ideology because it's crucial. Because this ideology at the end of the day sees not just Israel, they look at us as decadent societies. They don't need ratification in this world. It can be in the next world. And this is clearly trying to change the structures of democratic societies. And when I look at Germany and I see them demonstrating in a town called Essen here, calling to establish a new caliphate, I see what's happening, you know, in Berlin. And I look and I say, God, don't you understand that we in Israel, like the cannery in the, in the mine, we're on the front line. Is it
0: harder for Israel to be on that front line if that's how you see it when It is conducting itself on that front line in a manner which is costing it international sympathy. And it is costing Israel international sympathy, whether you think it should be or not. That's the case.
3: So Golda Meir, our Prime Minister, basically alluded to that by saying Israel really has a choice of survival or its reputation. And it's actually, this is the dilemma. We are in the sense trying to survive in a neighborhood that doesn't include Liechtenstein or Luxembourg. Israel has always shown that when there's a partner out there that wants to make peace, and that is Sadat in Egypt, Jordan under King Hussein, Israel has reached out and Israel was willing to pay a very high price. I want our listeners to remember that we gave every centimeter of territory back to Egypt and to Jordan we still have to work on the people-to-people element, which is crucial. This is why the Abram Accords are absolutely important, because there's an element of people-to-people.
0: Sure, but at some point, just to bring us back, I guess, to where we came in, the Palestinian people, I think, are no more likely to go anywhere than the State of Israel is. You're all going to have to live there. So at some point, there is going to have to be some kind of offer regarding a Palestinian state and how Palestinians and Israelis can live alongside each other?
3: So I think what we learned out of this is that we can never shy off or look away from the ideology and the terror. We can never allow another terror state to be built side by side to Israel. Sure,
0: but what do you build instead?
3: Okay, so we have to, in the sense, work together with the people that will deal with nation building on the Palestinian side to create you know a solution here which we're trying to reach for a very long time and like I said the way out is in the framework of an Arab regional cooperation with Israel at the end of the day would make this something which is you know livable but From an Israeli perspective, I think we woke up to an understanding that we have the issue of education and the issue of democratic structures have to be part and parcel of the way forward.
0: That was Israel's ambassador to Germany, Ron Prosser, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our next guest is the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Alban Kurti. I began by asking Prime Minister Kurti how he personally finds the Munich Security Conference and whether he's routinely asked to try to avoid causing everybody even more trouble. Sometimes.
4: uh, (laughs) I just started with meetings here, but obviously Balkans is always interesting. We're doing our best not to make it too interesting. And security is the key word also when it comes to my country, Republic of Kosovo, because we have these hardships with our northern neighbor who still does not recognize us.
0: Well, you did air out some of these difficulties with your northern neighbor, Serbia, at the UN quite recently. You did exchange some fairly brisk words with President Vucic in New York. But you also said last week at Chatham House in London that you felt Serbia wants to leave the option of invasion Open, does it still strike you that that is a live possibility, that that is something that could still happen?
4: Time and again, different Serbian officials repeat that line that it is not the first time that they've lost Kosovo in 1999. It happened in the past as well, and then they got it back. In December last year, President Vucic referred to a declaration of, I don't know whether it was the father or the son, of like president of Azerbaijan Aliyev who said that we've waited 27 years to get what we wanted and uh, this is
0: Nagorno Karabakh yes
4: so uh, basically he was referring to Aliyev in his relation to Kosovo saying that we will also have a historical window of opportunity to take over Kosovo well 27 years he didn't mention whether he is counting from 1999 which would make 2026 or he's counting from last year, which would make 2050 and would obviously put us into a rather relaxed mode.
0: But are you not wary of giving your northern neighbour reasons to be angry because the latest bone of contention is obviously this currency reform. You want all of Kosovo to use the euro as opposed to the small amount of Serbs in Kosovo who still use the dinar. Does it really matter all that much? I mean, I know the euro is the official currency of Kosovo, but this is 5% of the population we're talking about.
4: On 27th of December last year, Central Bank of Kosovo made this decision for a new regulation in order to fight illicit activities, terrorist financing, and they did well. I had no idea that they're going to bring this decision or Mm. they were drafting this regulation. However, everything was going smooth, the preparation. And in mid-January, precisely because the preparings were going well, President Vucic alarmed the region and Europe that a catastrophe will ensue from 1st of February when dinar will be banned. And then the pressure on me started. Mm-hmm. So not initially, only after President Vucic spoke. We were not banning dinar. You can have dinars in Kosovo, but mean of payment is euro. According to our constitution, we can have only one currency. And 33,000 pensionists, retirees, for example, in Kosovo, every month they take pensions from our government in Euros, all them being Serbs. So it's very difficult to think of a Serb who doesn't have a bank account where he's receiving some sort of payment from our government in euro. Serbia can do the same. We don't want to have any more lorries with sacks of cash dinar for parallel structures in Kosovo, If they wanna send money for education, healthcare, and they want, and they should, and we're gonna accept that, it must be done through banks, 10 commercial banks in Kosovo, any one of them, or numerous financial non-banking institutions that we have. We want to formalize and legalize money transfers. We are not banning dinars. You can have dinars, but as mean of payment, it must be euro. We're not telling the Serbs of Kosovo, you must take new Kosovar currency called Dardan. There's no such thing. Or lek from Albania. We're saying take euro, which is something that we took from European Union.
0: But this does
4: reignite
0: criticisms which you will have heard before and which certainly I've heard myself when I've travelled in largely Serbian parts of Kosovo that the long-term plan is to make life for Serbs in Kosovo so unpleasant and unbearable that they will eventually leave. Presumably you reject
4: that criticism? Uh, Of course we want to help Serbs and there is no government since we declared independence that has been helping Serbian community more than us. We have distributed millions of euros to NGOs, startups, farmers, and also to those who wanted to return to Kosovo by renovating their houses or building them. I have Minister Nenad Rashic for Community and Return, who has done more than all his predecessors. On the other hand, we started in Faculty of Philology, a Department of Balkanistics, so new generation of Albanians, learn Bosniak, Serbian and Croat language because the division that we have in our country is not ethnic, it's a language barrier. I am among the last generations who can speak Serbian Mm -hmm. and we need new generations to be able to speak Serbian and Serbs to be able to speak Albanian because I believe in multiculturalism through interaction of people and via multilingualism, So criticism against us is because we are successful, not because we're failing in integration of Serbs.
0: But it's still not quite the same as people having that thing where they feel at home, though, that they feel comfortable there. And I know there are other steps before. I know there are seats reserved for Serbian candidates in the Kosovo parliament. I know Serbian is an official language of Kosovo. But does it not worry you that that feeling of For Serbs being able to think this is actually our home, that still hasn't quite happened, or do you think that is the work of
4: of generations? Kosovo is our shared and joint home for all citizens of Kosovo in spite of their ethnic background. According to former Finnish president Martti Ahtisari, who is the architect of our constitution, we have 10 reserve seats for Serb minority that they are boycotting because they are all occupied by the branch of Vucic's party in Kosovo. And 10 other reserve seats among 120 altogether for other minorities, namely Roma, Bosnia, Turks, Ashkali, Egyptians, and Gorani. They are 3%, Serbs are 4%, and I'm prime minister of all of them. 10 out of 38 municipalities are Serb majority, so... You can always criticize the government, and uh, I think that goes with the fact that we have taken office in the executive branch. But then again, there must be acknowledgement for all our efforts from, let's say, appointing one of the board members of Trepcha, big complex of mining and minerals in Mitrovica, a serve from Leposavic. Dragisha Krstovic, to Srdjan Sentic, who is deputy ombudsperson, elected with secret ballot in Parliament of Kosovo, which makes me very proud because I told my parliamentary group you have to vote a serve as deputy ombudsperson. And I was worried that they're not going to do it. And in the end, Srdjan Sentic came out victorious and he's doing a great job. So the fact that we belong to different ethnicities is not really liability to cooperation and integration. Kosovo is the home of uh, Serbs and Albanians alike. The problem is the bullying from Belgrade to which I need the international help in order to stop it.
0: Well, I mean, that does bring us back a bit to where we came in, which is the current relationship between Kosovo and Serbia and between yourself and President Vucic. It is a year at least, or thereabouts, since the Orid Agreement, which was supposed to be a path to normalisation. Is there a next constructive step in that process that you can see from where we are now?
4: The seal of scepticism for the path forward was given by... uh, Prime Minister Madame Brnabic in mid-December last year when he wrote to EU27 that basically Serbia is withdrawing from the basic Mm. agreement, saying that they will never recognize independent Kosovo, that they will not accept seat in UN for Kosovo, and that they are not going to respect territorial integrity of Kosovo. So um, from this de facto mutual recognition, they have been withdrawing themselves and what we need now is Madam Bernabeus to withdraw this letter so we can have uh, implementation of the agreement. But I insist that for legal certainty and in order to annul previous breaches and prevent future ones, signature of basic agreement with its implementation annex is a must. That was the Prime Minister of Kosovo,
0: Albin Kurti, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our final guest today is Nikolai Dankov, the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, interviewed against a backdrop of authentic conference hubbub in a hotel lobby. I began by asking Prime Minister Dankov for his thoughts on the news of Alexei Navalny's death.
5: It's very sad news. It was a kind of a symbol, like Zelensky is also a symbol of what is happening in the world and how the democracy should be defended with different types of weapons, Mm. so the weapon that Alexei Navalny used is also a weapon that we have to value and to remember and to try to use it whenever appropriate. But on the other hand, it's also something you could expect if you look back how slowly the freedom was suppressed around Navalny, he chose his destiny, but on the other hand was suppressed in everything that he could do. And this is what I think Putin wanted to demonstrate to the world and especially to the Russians. So don't think about trying to follow Navalny. In some way, it was predictable.
0: Do you think there is still an amount of wishful thinking further in Europe? Because I know over the last two years there has been that slight tension I think between countries such as Bulgaria who've been trying to say to Western Europe we told you so and Western Europe still trying to think maybe Russia is ultimately reconcilable.
5: I think more and more the politicians everywhere in Europe understand now how serious it is. So my comment uh, here would be that now we the politicians have the obligation to explain this to the people in our countries because we have to get the support for the decisions that we make and we have to explain to the people that it is getting dangerous and it's getting dangerous for their lives that they like the way of living and what we see that happened in Russia, what we see happening in Ukraine, what we see happening in other parts of the world today is something that can come to the European countries just one, two years ago it was like impossible. Now it's a real threat. I
0: mean, there is at least one EU and NATO member, of course, which is still insisting on not quite getting it, which is Hungary. And I know you have had some difficulties with Viktor Orban recently. What I'm curious about is when you try to talk to him person to person, prime minister to prime minister, how does that conversation usually go?
5: I remember once this was at the European Council and I asked Viktor Orban, I said, listen, Hungary was one of the first countries that suffered after the Second World War from the Russian troops coming to Budapest. So, don't we remember this? We remember it. Then was Prague. Then the Russian troops were almost ready to go to Warsaw in times of Solidarność trade union, mm-hmm. up- uprise. So, these lessons are still there. So, there are people that remember them. And for me it was really unclear why Hungary, and Viktor Orban in particular, tries to ignore these lessons that were in his own country. So this was the question that I asked.
0: Did he have an answer? No. <laughs> How difficult has that one difficult man been able to make life for Bulgaria? Because I know he is still holding full Schengen over Bulgaria, isn't he? Is he the only reason now that the land aspect is not being ratified? I know Bulgaria has joined Schengen by air and sea, but there was this argument over Russian gas heading to Hungary through Bulgaria.
5: So, fortunately, we succeeded to sort out this discussion with Hungary. So, it was not Hungary, it was Austria that stopped us for the full accession to the Schengen area. So, this is another story. Mm-hmm. It was related to the control on the migrants, illegal migrants in Europe.
0: But do you think fractures like that do potentially represent a, not just a threat to European security in itself, but might also project what Russia sees as weakness, a division it can exploit?
5: I don't think it's reasonable to comment too much on what Viktor Orban thinks about this. It's good to ask him personally (laughs) and to get his explanation of what what is happening. What I know and I have repeated also many times is that the strength of Europe is when we are united. And it happened several times that for uh, important decisions Hungary didn't stop the anonymity of the European countries. But on the other hand, delaying these decisions is a problem, especially in these times. It's really very dynamic uh, time today, and speed of taking the decisions, of making actions, is crucial in many cases.
0: But do you think decisions, and they are they are very very big decisions about NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia? Do those need to be sped up?
5: We have to be realistic of what is possible, mm-hmm. and we have to be realistic what would help to Ukraine to be stronger on the battlefield. So definitely giving them the perspective for the European Union, for NATO, is something that helps. When, how exactly, how we explain this, this is something that should be carefully defined But I see that there is a lot of progress there. You remember the meeting in Vilnius that there was a formulation of a decision. I'm sure there will be another step now for the meeting in Washington. So we are getting there.
0: Another obvious theme of this conference has been the the war currently occurring between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and returning to the subject, perhaps, of personal interactions with somewhat stubborn fellow national leaders. You you have been to Israel since this began. You you did speak to Benjamin Netanyahu. What sense did you get of how interested he is in really listening to anybody else at the moment?
5: I had meetings with both, with the president and with the prime minister Mm -hmm. Netanyahu, and I think both of them listen very carefully, but they're in a very difficult situation. On one side, because the terrorist attack was really something unimaginable before that. And it's not easy to explain why this happened, how this happened, how with the, even financial assistance by Israel to the Palestinians, they got this terrorist attack after that. So for them, they have to clear out why this happened, how this can be avoided in the future. And the second difficulty, which is actually international difficulty, is how we define a long-lasting peace solution that would be acceptable for both sides. And there is again a difficulty on the Israeli side as well, because there is a division, as we see in the society, a division in the Israeli government. So they have to find a way to define together with the international forces, with the European Union, the United States, the Arab countries, a solution for peace that is realistic, for a peace that is also lasting. And we don't see it today. So this is the most difficult part here.
0: That was the Prime Minister of Bulgaria, Nikolai Dankov, speaking to us at the Munich Security Conference. That's it for this special extended episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Special thanks this episode to Karina, Eleanor, Eric and all the team at the Munich Security Conference. We'd also like to thank Sarah Joan Fuld for allowing us to record interviews at Black Space in Munich. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at ES at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com from me andrew muller thank you very much for listening until next time goodbye